Welcome to The Vector, where we discuss topics and trends driving the global space ecosystem. My name is Kelly Kiedis Ogborn, and I am the Vice President of Space Commerce and Entrepreneurship here at Space Foundation. Today, I am joined by Zahir Ali and Jamie Lesser from New Space Finance. Zahir is a respected expert on space technology, policy, and the new space sector, speaking often globally on artificial intelligence, the future of work, and how to help enterprises become agile. He wears many hats in our industry. He is a managing partner at New Space Finance, a venture partner at Minds Fund, a professor of practice at Thunderbird School of Global Management, the director of high performance computation at Hewlett Packard Enterprise, and an advisor at Think Orbital, which is building the fourth generation space station and a space railway. He is trained as a research physicist holding many patents an R&D 100 award, and over 400 authored and co-authored publications. Also joining me is Jamie Lesser, who is an alumnus of the International Space University's Commercial Space Enterprise Program at Florida Institute of Technology. He previously spent 20 years in equity capital markets with 15 years in the global resources sector, raising over 1 billion in equity. He spent six years as director of HSBC's top 10 ranked teams, advising institutional and private investors. He is founder and senior consultant of Tono Resources LTD and a non-executive director of London listed investment company, Mineral and Finance Investments. He co-founded Chalkstone Partners LTD, a social and political risk consultancy. He also has extensive experience in the analysis and appraisal of companies across the globe as both corporate broker and sell-side resource specialized equity sales. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining me today for this conversation. Thank you, Kate. Thank you very much, Kelly. We're very glad to be here. Absolutely. So what I want to dive into today is really focused on this concept of new space markets. So getting at how to think about them, what's really generating the buzz and how entrepreneurs can prepare for them. And I think that this is a really critical conversation to have because as an industry, we, we talk to ourselves. We talk in acronyms, we talk in statistics. You know, we, everyone throws around that the global space economy is gonna be worth 1 trillion plus by 2040, but like, what does that actually mean? And I know that in your day-to-day, -day, you do a lot of advising on markets and winners and how to prepare. And so I'd really like to distill some of this practical advice um, for, the, for the folks listening. And so to kick it off, um, I'm going to throw a question out and either of you can jump in, but I really want to get it to this concept of balancing altruism for where space is going and actually the pragmatism that's going to build businesses. Because as you know, it's a lot of those headlines like asteroid mining and lunar colonies and these things that, that capture headlines and investment. But the local space economy is, is fairly localized, right? 95% of the ROI is uh, the space to earth market. And so when you think about where this is growing, um, where is the real ROI? Like what are the investments and the industries that are really driving the market, signalizing this optimism? Awesome. Jamie, do you want to jump in first or should I? Well, I can kick off, I suppose. The, I mean, the ROI point is a, is a good one. I think it was the European Space Agency who bravely put out a calculation that for every euro invested, uh, it returns six euros to the economy. I've seen, I've seen estimates of about eight to 12 times, but I think it's probably lower than that. But governments around the world are, are in need of growth, and this is very much uh, where to find it. 
Um, to look at the forecasts that you mentioned, um, we, we get to those uh, or justify those because they're, they're decades out, right? They're 2030, 2040. So you can have a variance of a trillion dollar industry or a three trillion dollar, dollar industry, depending on uh, which bank you, you, you pay attention to. Uh, and there was a lot of flag waving involved by the investment banks putting those forecasts out um, to say we're open for business in this industry. And, and that paid off because we saw quite a lot of activity in the SPACs um, over the last couple of years since those forecasts uh, went out. Um, but the, the key thing, I think, is to keep a cool head, I suppose, because um, it is easy to get excited about the numbers. They're very skewed towards one particular area, which is satellites. Um, but the, the investors' um, uh, colder analysis, perhaps, um, should help and, and focus on the market. And entrepreneurs should always be aware that that is where, um, uh, what investors are looking at most of all. The market opportunities is really key and how are they going to make money and over what time period. VCs are looking at a seven to 10 year time period, not a 20 year time period. Um, and so we've got to bear that in mind. But at the same time, um, I think these, these forecasts, we, we can get over enthusiastic, we can get a little carried away, um, possibly in part because we've had decades of sci-fi uh, and we need to cut out the Disney effect a little bit. Um, but one of the exciting things about this sector is we're working with people who are influenced and inspired by that. We, Z and I are working with a doctor who's building uh, essentially what is a tractor beam for docking and slowing the tumble of debris. And there's some very exciting things out there which have been thought of decades ago may finally become reality. You know, Jamie brought up some really key points. Um, one thing that I think of a little differently, I, I want to tell a little story, is a few years ago, um, a, a friend made me aware of this crazy concept of, of, um, of sticking a fuel can in orbit and then somehow docking a satellite to it. And I said, well, that sounds cool. But what's the point, right? And, um, you know, just was it last month now? I guess since today's November 1st, I believe it was last month or it might have been September. Um, you know, Dan Faber and OrbitFab announced their um, contract with the Department of Defense for, for refueling satellites on orbit. And, you know, at the time, when I researched it, a few friends of mine um, who have significant capital came to me and said, you know, we're thinking about investing in this. And I, I looked at it and I said, this makes sense. Why did I say this, this makes sense? Is because it addresses a fundamental problem that um, defense operators have in the space domain, which is that uh, the satellites are fine. They're engineered for 20 years, but they run out of uh, propulsion, meaning the ability to move orbit you know, up and down in, in orbit or even make small adjustments to, to avoid orbital debris um, and then become kind of 10% of their capability because they can no longer be tasked in, in, in the way that we might want them to. Um, so as one Space Force colonel told me, it's a very Zen comment, we want to maneuver without regret. And the requirement for that is the ability to put more fuel in the can. Um, and so the reason I tell that story about OrbitFab uh, is that they found a fundamental migraine 
Uh, and then there's a really good book called All in Star- Startup by uh, Diana uh, Kander um, that talks about how a business has to solve a migraine, um, particularly to get started. Um, and really, that is general business advice, but it applies super, super applicably in the space industry, perhaps more so than in other industries. And, I'll, and the, you could ask why. Because this industry is hardware intensive. For the last 25 years, right, the COVID stocks boom, um, before that e-commerce and web 2.0, all of this has been driven in, in the digital world. Software is cheap to make, it's cheap to sell, once you've built it, you can sell it an infinite amount of times. It's like a, it, it, it's kind of like a book, except even cheaper because you don't even have to print it. You just send it or people download it. They're using their own bandwidth to acquire the thing you're selling, right? So it's, you know, and, and so that has driven investment to think in these three to five year cycles, as Jamie pointed out, the, the old appetite for seven to 10, 15, 20 year investment in venture capital and private equity has decreased a great deal because they're all drunk on software as a service um, business models. But the reality is that that's not what space is. Space starts with hardware. You know, I believe it was Andreessen that said software is eating the world. Well, sir, hardware is the world. It sets the table. It is the food. There's not, nothing in this world without hardware. And, but hardware is capital intensive. So when you, th- so when you think about picking winners, picking losers, um, a lot of times you learn more from from the from the dissection of the losers than the winners. As as Tolstoy said at the beginning, I think it was Anna Karenina, right? You know, all happy families are alike in their happiness, but but every unhappy family is unique in its own way. And the same thing goes for failed startups. All all, all successful startups are basically the same because they did all those things right. It's the failures where you realize, oh, this was a critical error, and that critical error was different from this other critical error. So when, when we think about how you're going to look at, at the space business, we know what everything right looks like. But as you navigate, as you're an entrepreneur, you have to actually do the, do the, um, you know, do, do the postmortem, do the autopsy on, on the cadavers that lay around us. And there are a lot of them. Um, you know, we mentioned uh, asteroid mining. Um, uh, I believe it was Deep Space Industries. Um, I, I, I always forget the name. Amazing company, visionary leadership, literally 15 years before its time, right? Psyche, the critical mission that NASA is launching. And it was almost canceled because of some nonsense software stuff. And, and that there was not an issue, in my opinion. If it was a commercial thing, it would have already launched. It would have been, it's fine. But the NASA is very, very careful. Um, that mission is critical because it's going to show how you get a thing to a full metal asteroid that is worth more than all the minerals ever mined in the history of humanity, right? So so when you think about this, um, you really need to parse out the migraine problem, you know, um, and then what were the critical failures in your slice of space and how to avoid those critical failures. Those are the two things I think that that the great companies are doing right now. And just because you raise money doesn't mean you have a successful company. That's the other thing. You have to sell something. It is a business. Yeah, no, those, those are phenomenal points. And I'm really glad you brought up that dichotomy between hardware and software, because as you so aptly put, you know, hardware is capital intensive, but it's also risk 
very risky. And so a lot of the iteration that you see a lot in, in Silicon Valley and others that's more on the software as a service side, you can put out something that is good enough and then iterate upon it or give an update. And that's not true in space because no. you are dealing with high stake systems, very expensive, but also lives at stake, which is not for the faint at heart, but it also draws a lot of interesting people or interested people rather to the industry because they're building something really hard. Um, there's a lot to unpack in what both of you said. So I want to pull on a couple of threads. One of them, as you were talking about companies being 15 years ahead of their time or you hearing pitches, you know, back in the day and saying, why is that something investable? There is this balance between doing science for science sake um, and progressing research and then knowing that that's going to lead somewhere. So looking at the evolving market, because, you know, the three of us live and breathe this every day, that tech maturation is really tied to market opportunities. So once there's some fundamental technical things like you know launch and reentry and uh, powering things in space, it's going to enable other technologies. But there are all of these other capabilities sort of waiting in the wings that have done the basic research. They're ready to jump, but how do they know where their insertion point is and if it's going to be viable? So you know there are a lot of amazing ideas that nobody cares about right now. Um, and that's a fundamental reality of research. Uh, I spent my, the first decade of my career as basically a, a fundamental re researcher whose work was then applied by other people. I worked um, uh, in, in the back end of nuclear weapons, payload side, not delivery. Um, and then I also got sucked down the rabbit hole of counterterrorism and nuclear nonproliferation, which was where I worked on more with, with uh, far more space assets uh, in terms of tracking, monitoring, ISR, et cetera, um, uh, intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance, sorry, we're avoiding acronyms. Um, and thinking about how to take a technology and commercialize it, you know, you, you got to talk to people like Janiah Griffin, who call, whose moniker is a commercializer. She worked at NASA in the commercialization office for many years and has gone to private consultancy or Craig Pritzky, who, who built a consultancy and career over 20 20 years commercializing med tech and is now going into space. That, that's a skill set. So, so one thing I would advise um, entrepreneurs is, right, there is this myth of the great man or great woman that drive, that takes a company somewhere, but that doesn't exist anymore. As one of my professors said to me, Z, all the easy problems have been solved. Nobody's discovering electromagnetism in their basement anymore, like Ampere with a, with a you know, copper rod and, and a, vol a voltage meter. Uh, or rather, uh, you know, a, a volt source on one one side and, and a bunch of compasses. And that's how we found the field line. It's a crazy simple experiment. It was him in his basement, apparently. That doesn't happen anymore, right? All these companies, if they're really successful, you know, whether it's led by people like, you know, Bezos or Elon or, or, or somebody like, you know, um, you know, Dan Faber or Sarah Spangello or, or Swarm, um, they have put together the right team. And that's super critical. And as a leader in this industry, you have to love the team. These are, this is big science. This is, you know, this is big research. This is big industry. And if you don't have the right team, then, then you have a challenge. So figuring out that insertion point, again, you, you circle back to, is, there a, is this solving a fundamental thing that somebody is willing to pay for, right? And not willing to pay a few bucks for, but willing to pay big bucks for, right? Again, when you have a migraine, you're going to breathe into a bag. You're going to stick your head in a bowl of steam. You know, you're going to go run five laps, anything. You have a migraine. You want to get rid of it. 
but you'll pay, you'll do whatever it takes, right? If you have a slight headache, you might just go lie down. You don't, you, you might not take a pill, you might not pay anybody. So, so focusing on what problem in the world that technology can move the needle on is really going to tell them that, hey, this is something commercializable. And then you want to go find the right people to help you build that. Because one of the things, as a technology person, I had to literally go get a degree, you know, certificates and, and educate myself on how to be a business person, right? If you don't have time and interest in doing that, you got to go get the right team. Yeah. And, and Jamie, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, but really quick to hear one follow-up to that. So are there any indications that they are on the right path? So you mentioned, right, like like getting people excited, but if if we're looking at forecasts that might be relevant 10 to 15 years that are going to be extremely critical to where space is going, what are those indicators that will let these researchers or, you know, basic scientists know that they're on the right? Yeah, fair enough. So, so one of the things, for example, um, why was reusability a focus in, mm-hmm. in rocket, right? Fundamentally, because you could do the math and tie it to a business value chain that said, if we can reuse this portion of the rocket, then the overall cost over a campaign of 100 launches comes down to this price. Boom. Right. You can do the math. Right. So one of the things you look for um, and and it's not just building a platform. People always want to focus on platforms. Investors love platforms, but it's kind of overdone. Um, if your technology enables a bunch of business opportunities, then your technology is highly commercializable. If it only enables one business opportunity, it's far less. And that may be something where you want to just go far enough to go have somebody acquire it, integrate it into a larger system, right? But if, if what you're doing unlocks multiple business models, and enables other people to build business models on top of what you've unlocked, then that is a highly, highly commercializable piece of technology. That's a great point. Jamie, anything to add? Sure. Um, I think just on the insertion question, it's it's important to think uh, with a, a sort of structured framework um, of how the market is going to evolve and, and um, you know, there are relatively few investors, I think, who are really doing this properly. Starbridge Ventures has a full-blown plan of how each technology development is going to unlock new markets that I think looks forward about 100 years. Um, there are thematic investors, clearly. There's still quite a lot of opportunism, I think, amongst the institutional investment community. Um, for entrepreneurs thinking about where they step in, I think they, they need to demonstrate thinking because I think that's one of the key elements, as he was talking about the team, you invest in a team, that team has to show they've thought through the entire process, they understand their own relevance, they understand their own importance and what might be missing in that team. That's the first thing you look at. Um, yes, there's a, a huge interest in the software side and platform technologies and enabling, um, but I just wanted to touch on the hardware question. My background is in natural resources, um, where we, we raised money for companies that, um, quite honestly, there were individuals saying, we think there's gold in them in our fields and we, we want to spend millions of dollars finding out. Um, that means it's eight to 10 years before you get any revenues. It's huge capex upfront um, and a long wait time. And, you know, for hardware, it, it's not impossible. You know, the, the city of London, Canada, Australia has been financing these sorts of companies for decades. There are thousands of mineral exploration companies 
offering those sorts of um, long-dated returns. Um, so we, we have the capacity and the wherewithal to fund hardware. Uh, and as he says, it's, it's, it's the table on which the food is served. Um, so yes, I think the, the timing is essential uh, for, for entrepreneurs to understand where they fit into the, the broader market, but also understand the investors that they're talking to, know your market, know your audience, um, and the, the, the problem that you're solving and whether or not that's a problem for the investor that you're speaking to. And on this theme of advice to investors, right, or how, how investors um, look at the market, if you were to give some kind of critical road mapping to them, how would you say that you should go about picking winners in this ever-evolving market? So, Zahir, I liked how you mentioned a technology unlocking multiple aspects, right? Not just one. Are there any other things that you would give as advice about like what's worth investing in? And sure. maybe, maybe there's two ways to answer this. Sorry. So partially there's going to be the, the ROI play, which investors are obviously very, very, um, you know, attuned to, but then there's the, also the side of like unlocking what space potential is. And so investors kind of diverge on both of those. And so you could take this question anyway. So, you know, that spectrum, that's a continuous spectrum. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes you have the same investor at one point investing in kind of the, the prestige or the legacy um, project. And then, at, you know, at one point and then the other side investing in a pure ROI. Um, one of the things that I talk about a lot in, in my um, classes uh, at Thunderbird School of Global Finance, uh, Global Management, where uh, we have the... Um, uh, the degree in space, business, leadership, and policy uh, is that space is not just a vertical, it's a horizontal. So when you're looking at investing, um, it's really critical to think about not only what is going to support the space industry and further exploration, exploitation of space and its resources, but also what aspects of space are going to disrupt existing industries. Mm -hmm. And there's a tremendous amount of opportunity to invest there. For example, right, the the satellite internet um, and communications um, infrastructure in orbit is, is, is going to reach fruition at the end of this decade, right? When we have, you know, Kuiper, um, OneWeb, um, Link, and Starlink, all, all of them up fully, you know, full, full-fledged, you know, my final forum constellations um, doing what they're supposed to do, right? But they need ground stations. Not everybody has an iPhone 14. Not everybody can afford an iPhone 14 that directly interfaces with that, right? And when you think about connecting the unconnected, um, you need a ground station. Um, so there's a huge play in, in the ground support for satellite-based communication. The same thing goes for, you know, it, it was a quiet acquisition relative to the rest of all the splashiness in space. But when SpaceX bought Swarm, Sarah Spangelo's company, that was massive. They've cornered the market. They are the best system for IoT connectivity in the world right now. Genius play, right? Um, and so, you know, but that's a very kind of deep, it's not sexy, you know, nobody's talking about it. Nobody, they're not supporting, you know, you know, freedom fighters in Ukraine, right? It's just a very simple B2B play that's going to connect 
all infrastructure in the world if if unless competitors come and try to try to attack that market. So what you know, I I always tell talk to investors and students about you know not just thinking about space as how do I invest in the next thing that's going to advance space, but how do I invest in and how do I build? How do I think about being an entrepreneur in using space to affect other industries the same way that some of the geniuses you know in the last twenty years have figured you know figured out how to disrupt everybody else by using the internet to disrupt existing industries? We'd still have Blockbuster if somebody at Netflix hadn't had this great idea of saying. Let's stream this stuff. We have the bandwidth now. Yeah. Well, it, it, it's a great point about really thinking about the enabling technologies and then the enablers, because there are these two buckets that people fall into. And you remember, Netflix actually was taking a spin on the Blockbuster model, and they initially would mail you the CDs. Right, the DVDs. I was going to release DVDs and the right, CDs, yeah. and then realize that nobody wants to deal with the mail service anymore. We might as well just be able to tap into streaming. And now that's that's ubiquitous with everything we do. Exactly. Yeah. And again, this is this is where the investors fit in with the the enabling and the enablers in, in identifying the right investor. Um, you know, they they are. You asked about um, picking winners. You pick winners in, in capital markets. You know, on the stock exchange, uh, and you you do that by following things like the well buffeted durable competitive advantage. Um, that's relevant here too, but in VC, it's, it's, it's often less about picking winners and more about creating them. And, and these, these funds are designed to uh, offer you a, a, a whole suite of services and networks and expertise and experience um, that will help your particular company. So whilst you may have plenty of uh, institutions that will, will follow into a, a funding round, for example, key is to find the right strategic investor um, who's actually going to build your business with you, um, who, who gets your, your mission or your technology or your team or something about your industry or, or sub-segment um, and are, are going to help you um, grow as fast as you can as well. Speed is, is of the essence too with this. Yeah. If I can just follow on to one thing Jamie said, right, is that the last few years of space have been like um, – kind of the early you know sorry the late 90s early 2000s mm -hmm. when you know I was I was at I, I was a student at Cal then um, and you know sometimes I wonder if I should have dropped out and taken w one of the many roles offered to me at a startup because you had VCs and you know people flying out from east coast literally it, it felt like they were on the corner throwing checks at people it was nuts just they were in some ways, yeah. They were, yeah, right. Yeah. And, and a lot of dumb ideas got funded. The same thing has happened in the space. Let's be really sharp about this. Let's be really honest. You know, um, don't invest in launch. Don't start another launch company. Unless you figured out new physics, right? Literally, you have to figure out new physics at this point or new chemistry to get us off the existing, you know, system of fuels, et cetera. It's not worthwhile, right? Now, the propulsion, in-space propulsion companies have figured out how to apply new physics. That's that's different. I'm talking about launch, getting to orbit, right? Um, it's it's pointless. You're going to see massive consolidation. There's going to be like a launch market, um, a launch uh, company crash. It's not going to be the whole space industry is going to crash, right? But you're going to see a bubble burst and launch. But it's going to be good. It's like a fever. It's healthy sometimes, right? Because it's going to cure the disease that is this, you know, unthinking, you know, rush uh, of, you know, gluttonous investment, right? 
you know, where certain other projects are starved because they aren't sexy enough and they're not in the news constantly. Um, so, you know, that's one of the things that we talk a lot to investors at New Space Finance is that, right, part of the reason you talk to us is because we have the ability, because we're constantly, our head's always in this, to really parse out where these opportunities are. Whereas if you invest purely on the headlines, right, for example, um, I told a lot of my friends, look, as soon as other SPACs come online, you're going to see spice. It's going to go to 10 percent, 20 or 10, 10 or 20 percent. Um, and I shorted the hell out of it. Um, and I did very, pretty well um, because as soon as the other companies started IPOing the SPAC, et cetera, SPAC at that, you know, spice at that time was trading as a surrogate for the entire space economy because there was nothing else to invest in. And you see a lot of things like that happening. So you can't invest in headlines. As an, and as an entrepreneur, you can't chase headlines with your business idea. You have to focus on what's real, what's tangible, and where that migraine and ROI are going to come from. You're hitting on a really critical aspect. Well, Jamie, did you want to mention something quickly? Yeah, I was, I was just going to say, you know, in capital markets, every time you, you get to a, a peak, uh, it, it, people start to raise war chests, cash shells, or spats, whatever they're called each time. It might be slightly different. Um, and excessive enthusiasm can be damaging. Um, and and uh, it, it does tend to blow up fairly spectacularly in, in the case of technology. Um, and investors do make that mistake, not just in space. Um, and Z's touched on a, a couple of examples from SPACs to launch. Um, but it it's always follows the similar trajectory, whether it's um, excitement around graphene or 3D printing or the internet or space. It, you have the exuberance, you have the bubble burst, and then the dust settles and the industry matures. And I would say that we're in a, a situation now and over the next 18 months, which would probably be the best time to be deploying capital into the, into the industry and making the right decisions. It's, it's going to be tricky, as you say, if there are in excess of 180 launch companies and there's a market that can probably stand 10 or less, it'll be tricky to, to, to pick the right one. So stay away from launch, um, yeah. do something which you do understand. But I do believe that you know the next 18 to, to 24 months is going to be a very interesting time. If you're investing on a five-year horizon, even it doesn't have to be seven to ten. Um, I think there are some excellent returns to be had. Yeah, the the headliner topic hits at a fundamental problem that persists across the space industry, and part of it is is that because it's so often discussed in silos, you talk about launch, you talk about satellites, you talk about now commercial space stations, for folks that aren't already in it, they think that's all there is in a lot of ways. So going back to this concept of enabling technologies and the enablers, um, and people think that, oh, I want to be an entrepreneur, that's how I get involved in it, but they don't see the second and tertiary effects that these technologies ripple throughout markets. And so pulling on this concept, which is a very, very favorite concept of mine of space adjacency, so what are the capabilities, background skill sets, industries that are those enabling technologies that are going to be relevant to not just grow, but also sustain commerce and low earth orbit and lunar outposts and Mars outposts and everything else? Um, what gets you excited about the future of space? So what are those areas that are budding that if there was an entrepreneur saying, you know, I really want to get involved, but I don't want to create a launch company because you would tell them not to, <laughs> where would you tell them to go? and look at? 
Well, I'd, I'd kick off with the, the point of adjacency. You know, we, we nearly didn't call ourselves new space finance because if you say space to an investor, they used to just run away. It's, it's too hard. They didn't have the in-house expertise. There hadn't been enough exits. Um, but as he was talking about earlier, you know, you identify a problem that is shared beyond the space industry or the space domain, uh, which touches on other sectors and other industries. And that's the critical point about space. Not only is it the confluence of almost every buzzword from, from additive manufacturing and quantum computing and miniaturization and you know, renewable energy and all of that, but also, and, and refining those, those technologies and robotics is another one. But also, they impact every economic industry in one way or another. Um, and oftentimes, those industries aren't perhaps at the forefront of the space industry. Mining, again, is a good example where the folks who are really at the forefront of robotics may not necessarily know a great deal about the mining industry. Mining's been working on automation for decades, absolutely, and they're pretty good at it. But do they really understand what NASA can do? I shouldn't think so. Um, and it is going to affect the industry and the people, the, the companies that grasp that early uh, will do very well or at least protect themselves. And I think portfolio managers need to be aware of that. And I think the entrepreneurs need to be very conscious of that too. Um, what excites me about the industry beyond that, um, it's an overarching effect, is also you are working with people who, whose legacy is intended to last for centuries and not just a few years. And I think um, it's not just the investor mindset, which is quite short term, it's relative to what people are working on here. Um, but you also mentioned silo space uh, has to get out of itself and look at the real world around it. Uh, again, we're back to, back to adjacency. Um, but there's an awareness of this. It's exciting to, to, to be around. Uh, and eventually you know, the, the presence of space in our daily lives will be more fully felt by the individuals. And that's, that's when things really take off. You know, I should say one thing. You know, I, I, I sound pretty negative on launch, but I, I'm not. Um, you know, um, uh, Jared Friedman, for example, of Orbital Bridge has a fundamentally game-changing concept for, for, for how to do um, uh, that frequent launch. Um, Ken Douglas uh, of Space Railway um, uh, has a fundamentally ch game-changing concept on, on how to move mass around. Um, there's also um, uh, uh, Sling or Slingshot um, which is doing things differently. So, so thinking different is always going to be investable at some level. Um, but when you think about adjacency, right, um, there, are, there are key problems, right? We know, for example, um, the, the, the Malaysian Airlines flight that years ago went down in the Pacific and we, and we never found it. Debris washed up here, washed up there. We don't know what happened to it. We actually did know what happened to it, but we deleted all the data <laughs> because there are satellites that covered that part of the Pacific, but they're programmed to delete all pictures of open water because that there's no value being derived there um, for their purpose, right? So we have the data, we deleted it, and therefore we are blind. Um, so why, why is the satellite program to do that? It has extremely limited onboard processing, extremely limited onboard storage, right? And satellite communications are literally the same as they were in like 1960 or 1965, right? It's a problem. Right, it's old, old RF systems. So people working on satellite communications, right? Um, you know, you've got uh, Rick Ward of um, Orbital Edge, who's working on computation and data storage in space, right? So that we don't beam down data, we don't beam down data, we de-beam down information and conclusions, 
right? It's a fundamentally different concept. I talk that, about that a lot. People don't understand the stack of, of, of what data means. Data is, is equivalent to, to, you know, rocks out of the ground. You, you do stuff to it. You get some level of, of information. You do stuff with the information. You build a model and then you build a prediction. Right. And so really where people are paying, where, where people, where the value is derived is at that top. Right. Um, now you have a lot of people doing, you know, filling that stack. Um, so, so, you know, uh, when I think about adjacency, I think about things like that's in the space vertical, right. You know, unlock, right. Though, you know, communications, processing, storage, those will unlock our ability to use so much more data. Um, you know, I believe that, that uh, Megan uh, Crawford of, um, Space Fund said the other day that she, she had the number. I think it was like 10% of all data gathered is actually used. That's crazy. That means we're throwing away 90% of stuff that's interesting. That's insane, right? So there's a tremendous, tremendous amount of opportunity in turning um, and, it, you know, sorry, in enabling the better usage of Earth observation data. And the second part of that is this is now into the horizontal, right? Mm -hmm. We're starting to see applications of Earth observation data in a huge variety of things. Everything from crop optimization to understanding water levels in Africa. Um, you know, I was talking to um, some folks from Kenya and they're like, look, we don't know why in the same year that we had a drought, our water table rose. We don't understand what's going on. We know this can be solved by earth observation data because of what the um, uh, planetary scientists tell us, but we either ha don't have good enough data. And I'm gonna tick off a lot of the EO companies here I, I just, right, when I was building a pipeline for, for monitoring um, oil pipelines, um, we acquired data from one of the major um, EO companies and they did not deliver what was promised. So they have some tech problems, they're getting there. Um, it's gonna come, um, it's just the typical tech ladder, startups over promise, under deliver at times. But the fundamental thing is people need to figure out what to do with that data and apply. You've got companies like Ursa, which are basically predicting or giving indicators on the price of oil based off of things like tanker movement and 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 other logistics movements of oil, you know that's a really great pointy application that can sell it, right? So when when I talk to people who are like, oh, I'm I'm thinking about this, I'm thinking about that, I say, you know, can you do anything in you know in terms of using Earth observation data? Do you have an understanding of a different domain where this can be applied in an intelligent and and monetizable way? Um, the other area is where are the gaps in that vertical, okay. um, right? If you, you know, satellite communication is something that it's going to be a five-year return for investors and, and a five-year exit likely. And, it, and it's likely to be exited, not necessarily to the market, but to be acquired by one of the major players, right? Um, so so you, you have uh, things there. Then the other side of it is hardware as a service is going to continue to grow. Um, we're seeing commoditization of a lot of systems within the vertical. Um, and also the offering of those systems as a service. So you don't, you don't just buy the thing off the shelf, almost like a COTS part, but even the integration and everything is managed and you get continuous software updates, optimizations, you might get um, changes um, to, to even parts of your hardware um, that you purchase it through a service agreement over time. Um, so, so those are a few things that, that are very interesting in the shorter term play um, and where there aren't enough people working on it right now. And a pervasive theme that really plays throughout that as a strategy is really 
not really necessarily inventing the wheel, but finding an insertion point into the supply chain. And I think that's an overlooked strategy because innovation isn't necessarily doing something new. It's just doing something better, right? Or more or more efficient. Um, and with space data in particular, what's interesting is that has been probably the number one answer when I ask that question to folks is what is, where are the opportunities? And um, I read somewhere that they were saying that space data is probably going to be the most hot, hotly traded commodity that's going to surpass oil and gas in the next 10 to 15 years. Because to your point, there are so many satellites collecting so many things, processing a very small aspect. And so when you think of that entrepreneurial chain, it's being able to not only store, but qualify and quantify and then utilize down on earth. Um, so there's, there's tremendous opportunity there. And I think it'll only grow, especially as we start to see a lot more of these satellite constellations going in low earth orbit that are going right. to be um, just more agile in that way. Um, right. And one point on that, if I, I'm sorry, but yeah. I forgot it, um, is that we are now entering a time where you have time domain earth observation yeah. data. Yep. That is a big deal, right? Um, some of these constellations are promising that I can get the same, I can image the same spot every hour. That changes the game. That's huge difference than what we were even five years ago where it was once a week, once a month, you know. Mm -hmm. um, when you can do true time domain analysis, uh, that, that changes everything. Um, so what's gonna be interesting actually is um, how people build the stack between um, all the way from Earth observation data from space to drones, um, you know, to, to HAPS high altitude platforms, um, to, to kind of um, uh, lesser range drones, to, to people, right? So thinking about this as an integrated stack of capabilities mm -hmm. that can be used in different ways. Um, for example, one stack, um, that 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 I, I helped field was satellites to drones to people for oil pipeline surveillance and repair, right? Um, and it sounds obvious once you say it, but because I, we had somebody with domain expertise in in, in the oil industry, and we were experts on the uh, on the technology side, we were able to come together. So there's going to be a lot of amazing creativity through that Medici effect, where you bring like a you know, somebody in agriculture and, and sit them next to um, an EO uh, data expert and, and suddenly in, in, amazing sparks will, will fly. Yeah, it's that whole um, old adage of what was impossible will all of a sudden become inevitable. Yeah, I and, love that one. Yeah, because it's true. It's just a matter of finding when it's going to be relevant and having the perseverance to actually make it possible. Um, so my, my final question before I want to open it up to, to last thoughts, but if you were going to give advice to entrepreneurs now, so we talked a lot about the investment side, but thinking about the entrepreneurial side, what is an often overlooked aspect when they are pitching to investors? So you talked about the power of teams and we know that teams are critical in order to scale. Um, and also, you know, being able to know whether your technology or proposed solution unlocks multiple markets, but is there something that you see a lot that is critical for them to getting investment, but is just an afterthought? Jamie, you want to jump in? I, I think the, the, the two things which always come straight to mind in this, this sort of question is, is one we've already touched on before. It's not about the technology, it's about the market. Um, and, and try and get your mind into the investor's head and think about what is important to them rather than what is important to you. 
um, know your audience. That's the, that's the first point. But the second, which we see often, is to understand whether a VC is even right for you. Mm. Do they have the right time horizon? Do you have venture scale? Do you tick the boxes that they, they can't bend around the mandate that they've been given by their, their own investors? Um, so you have to, to really consider not only whether or not the VC is right, but which particular um, VC is going to be right. And, and I suppose in, in doing ourselves out of a, a, a service, the, the, the best advice is always, you know, the best way to raise money is by selling something um, and not your equity. Um, but it's, it's never usually an option um, at the earlier stage. But uh, to, to think commercially, think like an investor would always um, facilitate the conversation. That's a great point. Yeah, what, one of the things, you know, um, I'll double down on product market fit, as Jamie said, and, and also making sure that you're um, going to the right um, investors. Like for my, my materials company, Material Mind, you know, a, a good friend of mine, um, uh, he, he spent uh, 20 years in, in Hong Kong um, bringing uh, Asian startups uh, to American capital. And, and I, I asked him to help me figure out who to, who to pitch to. And we, we sliced and diced it. And, and out of the, the couple hundred good, you know, serious, you know, semi-deep tech VCs in Silicon Valley, we parsed it down to a list of five total that we might be a fit for, right? Now that sounds brutal um, because as a startup, you're like, well, I shouldn't go pitch to the other, other 195. It's like, you can, but at some level, you're wasting your time in theirs. Um, so you really want to be focused on um, the right type of investor. Um, and one of the things to, again, keep in mind, you know, the, the exit horizons and the type of stuff they invest in. And I don't just mean like, is it biotech or is it space? But is it, is it platforms? Is it um, uh, hardware? Is it software, et cetera? It's really key to understand. Um, because, you know, VCs work on... VCs are Mark McGuire, right? He batted, you know, 245 or something, um, you know, for his career. Not a very good batting average, but he was one of the most sought-after hitters in all of baseball because at any given day, he could hit a ball 450 feet. Um, and so, you know, he hit a lot of home runs. That's most VCs, right? Now, there are a few that are more like Incutel, right? You know, they're, they're Ted Williams. They're out there trying to, you know, you know bat, you know, for, for average and, and, for, and for bases. Um, uh, you know, and they bat, you know, bat much, much higher exit level. But, uh, but Incutel companies often exited to acquisition as opposed to IPO and unicorn, right? So you want to think about, is your technology, you know, as Jamie said, scalable to that level? A lot of technologies are not. So you need to build your company to be acquired by the right company that will then integrate it into whatever system. That's still a huge amount of value. And a lot of amazing serial entrepreneurs do that, you know. Folks who who, ha who who made that massive exit, you know, you know, uh, war chest, but they've done it over four companies where they build the right thing with a tight, super tight product market fit, you know, build themselves, you know, to be acquired by one of four companies in that sector, and then that happens in four years, right? And everybody's super happy. Um, so, so that, you know, you can build. You have to think about how you're building your company, and and make sure your pitch is right for that. Make sure your your, your audience is right for that. The other one thing, though, that I, I want to just say that people often forget is um, 
when you, t- you have to tell a story mm-hmm. and the story has to start just like, you know, Vonnegut would say with a problem, right? It doesn't matter what the problem is. Somebody wants a glass of water to use Vonnegut's famous lecture analogy, right? And they can have all the ups and downs, but he has to have a problem, right? You know, a market, you know, you could call it market need, but maybe, maybe, you know, but, but as, as, you know, this is probably apocryphal, but, you know, as, as Henry Ford supposedly said, you know, if I'd asked people what they wanted, they would have said a faster horse, right? So sometimes you will end up creating a market. That is true. But there was still a problem. Yeah. There was still a problem. Goods and people didn't move fast enough. It was hard to move a lot of them. And, it, and, and you had a lot of problems along the way because that's why they had horses staged, right? The, the phrase stage coach comes from the fact that you'd go from one stage to another where you change the team of horses and the driver, and then the coach would continue, right? People have forgotten a lot of these things. The old post system worked that way. The postman would stay the same, but they would change horses, right? You know, cars completely change that. You refuel in 10 minutes and you got, right? It's hyper-reliable, blah, 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 right? So, so when you think about how you give your pitch, you have to start with that problem. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, most pitches I see start with the solution. And then they're burying the lead halfway through at the end somehow you, you know, this is the problem and they finally present the market. So no, no, start with that on the top because now I'm interested. Yeah. Right. You know, it's, it's that classic and Jamie, you mentioned this about knowing your audience, but impact to them because oftentimes you have to show that show someone that it's an issue, then get the solution, remind them again why it's an issue and how it's going to impact them and bring them along through that narrative journey as opposed to just jumping straight to something. Like you said, here's a here's a car and they're like, well, I just need X. Because a lot of times when you're pushing the boundaries of innovation, sometimes your competition is the status quo. It's just yeah. how things have been done and why do we need to do it better? And so bringing people along that progression is important. Um, I would add as well, sorry, if I may, I'd add, you know, the, the importance of the story is also um, you're, you have to build momentum um, when you're, you're raising capital. And sometimes these processes just drag on and on and on and people can take it or leave it. Um, but a well thought through approach will have hopefully a deadline, um, momentum building towards that. And... I think the most effective way of, of raising capital is to, to do it before you need it. You, you speak to the investors you want to be speaking to, build a relationship with them before you're trying to raise money. And you have them monitoring your, your progress. You, you've built that relationship of trust. Uh, they know that you're delivering so that when it comes to raising money, you just pick up the phone and say, now's your chance, rather than picking up the phone and saying, hi, you've never heard of me before. You've got three months going to do your due diligence. Um, it, it's much easier if you've got all of that in place beforehand, you've built momentum around the story and even better. Uh, and I have to take my, my hat off to the, the folks at Seraphim uh, Capital who, who listed their, um, their VC fund in London uh, July last year. And they did it exactly the time where all of the so-called billionaires were, were setting themselves up into space. They had every single news headline in their favor. Uh, at a time when they were raising money from the stock exchange. It was brilliant timing. So trying to engage PR as well as investor relations. Yeah, this has been a fascinating conversation and I wanna throw it out for final thoughts. Anything that we didn't touch upon that is just you know burning in your mind that you wanna, you wanna impart for our audience? 
well, I'll, I'll go. Um, you know, one, you know, Kelly, we were at IAC together um, yep. just a, a couple months ago. It's amazing that it's already a couple months. I feel like it was last week. Um, but time, time, uh, you know, Tempest Fujit and all that. Um, one of the themes of that show was, uh, of course, post-launch space economy. Um, you know, uh, but also was cis, was um, really the moon is gathering momentum. Um, and specifically because it's a near target for resource capture. Um, and it's also going to be geopolitically critical. Um, but within that, you know, on that geopolitical point, what was very interesting was the discussion of sovereignty and capabilities countries would have. Um, so when you think about space, space is born global, mm-hmm. right? The supply chain is global, the value chain is global, certainly the value delivery location of every human in, on earth at some level is capable of taking advantage of it, right? We're using space assets right now. Before I had my first cup of coffee, I checked my email, blah, blah, blah. You know, 10 space assets were engaged. But ITAR is a thing, right? Trade regulation is a thing. So I would advise folks to be very, very sharp about understanding their geo location in terms of market and where they're building, where they're setting up their company, who they're selling to, mm-hmm. um, and where their capital is coming from. You know, I'm going to be really sharp. Don't, in, don't take Chinese capital. Don't do it. It's going to end badly, right? If your capital is coming from Eastern Europe, you need to engage somebody who's going to investigate the true origin of that capital. I, I engaged some former associates of mine who used to work in, in, in communities where they can find things out about people. Um, for a friend of mine who runs a fund and he had to turn down a $10 million check because it was coming from the wrong person in the Middle East. That happened. So as a company, you have to be really, really sharp on this, right? If you need help, if you're stuck with some bad cap table issues, you need to contact Heather Joe Rickman at uh, the Defense Innovation Unit. Um, she is amazing and she will help you get that stuff sorted. Um, so, you know, I, I just want to touch on those things. Um, and finally, right, you can sell a capability to the EU that is wholly redundant, possibly, with a capability being sold in the U.S. if your company is based in the EU, because they need that, that capability within their sphere of global influence. And you may not be able to sell it sitting in the U.S. to that and vice versa. So th- there, there's a lot of these things there that, you know, and this is why you need the right team. Frankly, this is a lot of the advice we offer at New Space Finance. There's also Aegis Trade Law. Bailey Reichardt and Jack Shelton, who do an amazing job, um, keep, keep U.S. companies out of trouble, frankly, um, or help them get out of trouble once they're in it. So, you, you know, as a founder you, and an entrepreneur, you have to be doing what in business school, the very old, old pestle analysis, right? You have to do it. It has to be part of how you think about what your business is doing, what your roadmap is, because there's, there is a bit of a minefield because these technologies have for so long been integrated with defense. And so as we're extricating them from that, right, we're, we're going full commercial. You know, you know I'm, I, wanted, I want to play Quidditch in space at some point, right? That, that's not defense at all. But you, you're right. A lot of these technologies are wrapped up in that. So we have to, as, a found, as founders, investors, entrepreneurs, keep that in mind, understand that political, that geopolitical risk, um, geotechnical uh, risk, et cetera, and just account for it. And what's fun is that it actually creates opportunities if you know how to parse it out and look for it. I'm going to pick up on the geographical point exactly that um, the talent in the UK and, and in Europe is, is, is quite considerable. 
uh, and the global nature of space means we really should take advantage of that. You know, I think the UK leads in small sats, Europe leads in quantum, perhaps uh, on the PPPs, certainly, uh, and the UK again in, in small satellites. Uh, but again, as you mentioned, not every dollar is, is the same. And the nature of European capital investment is, is it has a, a lower risk appetite. That is changing fast. Uh, we have different valuations to, to in the US. And this is one of the reasons new space finance has a bridge between Europe and the US, not only for the, for the flow of capital, but also the flow of ideas and um, to reach for the people that you need to, to, to build to build the dream, I suppose, to build the company that you're, you're trying to build. Um, so take advantage of the, the global nature of it where you can. It is complex. Um, and he's just given some, some pointers about how to, how to navigate it or who to talk to. It is. The, the power of partnerships are extremely critical for building our collective wish for the future. But uh, Zahir, to your point, it is an interesting shift because space during the Apollo era was one of competition. Now it's one of competition and collaboration. No one owns space. No one owns the moon. So now when we're going to have these commercial and government activities operating simultaneously and symbiotic, symbiotically, it's like the wild, wild west we're about to enter into. And that's that's a whole other conversation that we could have and actually should have because when uh, people are always asking me like what areas of um, academic research or majors they should go into, and I'm like, go get into space law because it's going to be really relevant and very necessary in you know three, five, 10 years. Um, well, here, Jamie, I want to really thank you for this conversation. Um, this hour just blew by. We could probably go on much, much longer, but that's why I think we need to um, schedule a, a part two and, and dive into some more of these topics. But thank you for sharing your time and expertise with us this morning. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Likewise. Thank you so much, Kelly. And thanks to the Space Foundation for all the work they do. You guys are amazing and we're very happy to, to, to participate and, and support. Thank you. Well, much more to come. And, and to our audience, you know, thank you for tuning in. Um, please stay tuned for more conversations from The Vector, where we will discuss topic and trends driving the global space ecosystem. I'm Kelly Kitas-Ogborn, and we'll see you next time.